Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd. I'm the digital media editor at Heart. Once again, thanks ever so much for all of the nice reviews that you're leaving on iTunes and Stitcher and other podcast platforms. It really does help us reach new listeners. Today, I'm delighted to be interviewing Dr. Madalena Garby from the Royal Patworth Hospital. Madalena works just around the corner from me in Cambridge. And we're discussing her role on the NICE Guidelines Committee for heart valve disease. And Madalena really goes into detail about how NICE guidelines are put together and also how they differ from other professional society guidelines that we're all familiar with from the ESC, the ACC and the AHA. I hope you enjoy this discussion. But maybe if I start off by asking you to introduce yourself, Madalena, to the Heart Podcast audience, where do you work and what do you do? Hi, I'm Madalena Garbi. I'm a consultant cardiologist at the Royal Papport Hospital, and I have expertise in imaging, particularly echocardiography and heart valve disease. Perfect. And Madalena, you've recently written a very comprehensive review all about the NICE guidelines and how they're developed. Uh, and I know you're uh, a part of the NICE guidelines committee for valvular heart disease, but perhaps you can start off by telling us some background to the paper. What inspired you to write this for heart? Um, so I was appointed as the NICE topic advisor on heart valve disease at the end of 2018. And this was, as you say, for the development of the first NICE clinical guidelines on heart valve disease. So I had the opportunity to work closely with a NICE professional team that support the development of clinical guidelines. Uh, these comprise project managers, information specialists, systematic reviewers, and also health economists. Um, I found that this opportunity was a real privilege. However, it was also a difficult task. Given that there are differences in the principles, um, the rules and the processes NICE uh, uses for the development of clinical guidelines compared with professional societies, clinical guidelines, I had been uh, previously involved with development of guidelines by professional societies. So I thought um, I have to write this paper to highlight the differences. I felt I need to explain the different recommendations that come out uh, on, on, a, on a similar subject. And I also wrote the paper to highlight the ways um, that can be used to influence the final clinical guidelines, because um, NICE opens uh, guidelines, the guidelines draft to consultation before finalizing the recommendations. And the paper was published just before the beginning of the consultation on the NICE clinical guidelines on heart valve disease. And it was my way of inviting the relevant UK professional societies to reach a national consensus in response to NICE um, regarding recommendations they find controversial. I obviously already knew that some recommendations will be found controversial, and I felt that I need to reach out uh, to the professional societies because consensus is important for, for NICE. So that was the reason. Thank you very much. And can you tell us a little bit about NICE? Uh, what does it stand for, especially for the non-UK-based listeners? Um, what was it set up? Uh, why? What's the remit of NICE compared to, say, a professional society? Uh, NICE was set up in um, 1999 as the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. So um, the aim was to standardize care and create more consistent guidelines. 
the status was changed in 2013 uh, when NICE became a non-departmental public body, so it became more more powerful, and it then became the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. The remit of NICE covers um, the healthcare, but also social care and also public health. And NICE develops not only clinical guidelines, but it develops uh, quality standards, technology appraisal guidance, and also guidance on diagnostics, on interventional procedures, uh, and on medical technologies and highly specialized technologies. Now, the clinical guidelines are developed in collaboration with the Royal Colleges. For example, my appointment as the topic advisor, which the topic advisor belongs to the guideline committee, but also belongs to the NICE uh, technical team. It's something in between. So my appointment as the topic advisor was is an appointment of the Royal College of Physicians. So that's the way the Royal Colleges work together with NICE uh, for the guidelines. So. The NICE clinical guidelines are not to be confused with the technology appraisals or with the NICE guidance on interventional procedures. Uh, because, for example, uh, the technology appraisal and the guidance on an interventional procedure may find that a certain technology and procedure is safe and is clinically effective. However, the subsequent clinical guidelines may not recommend the procedure widely uh, or the technology. It may restrict it to um, an area and to a um, category of patients for which is found to be both clinically effective, but also cost effective. Um, so NICE is not only about um, clinical effectiveness, it's also uh, a body uh, meant to keep an eye on cost effectiveness. And following on from that, how do the guidelines developed by NICE differ from those developed by the professional societies that we'd all be aware of, the AHA, ESC, ACC, etc.? You've already hinted a couple of things there, but perhaps you can flesh that out a bit more, the differences in the approach? Yeah. So the clinical guidelines that are developed by the professional societies aim to be exhaustive. They are comprehensive, they are exhaustive accounts of state-of-the-art clinical practice um, within the scope of practice of the respective professional societies. They practically describe everything. Um, and they are based on evidence, but also when there is no evidence, they, they are based on expert opinion. They allow uh, experts. Experts are nominated to participate to the guidelines committee. So uh, professional societies also are not concerned with availability of resources. They're not concerned with the cost of what they recommend. Uh, and they are not directly respons uh, um, responsible for the implementation of the guidelines. So although these guidelines documents can be impressive and they can be like a cookbook describing absolutely everything, <laughs> the implementation varies with the healthcare system. Um, the implementation varies with the health insurance, uh, with socioeconomic concerns of a nation, let's say for the ESC guidelines, the guidelines are not implemented the same in every country in, the, uh, in Europe. Uh, and they're also, let's say in America, um, uh, the, uh, the implementation depends on uh, economic constraints affecting a particular individual. So practically, you know, you may not have um, state-of-the-art healthcare or the same uh, healthcare for everybody. So cost-effectiveness also is not addressed by the clinical guidelines developed by professional societies. Uh, it is, though, addressed um, 
to be fair, both in America and a, a bit more recently in Europe, by uh, the appropriate use criteria. So appropriate use criteria were first defined by the American healthcare system. And more recently, they were also found to be important by the European Society of Cardiology and European Association of Cardiovascular Imaging. And I was involved in the development of the first appropriate uh, use criteria, um, which is a, a, a concept very hard to understand. And it was the first time I was put at the border in between um, uh, clinical and cost effectiveness. Um, the, the appropriate use criteria refer to a limited number. Uh, they, they, they are not exhaustive. They refer to a limited number of um, high impact clinical scenarios. Um, and in that, uh, in that regard, nice clinical guidelines are similar with appropriate use criteria, because nice clinical guidelines um, start, uh, development starts with the development of a scope, which this scope selects, again, a limited number of questions to be answered when we review the evidence. Uh, reason why they may appear as fragmented when they're written up, uh, they're not a complete um, account of everything we do and everything we know uh, about the condition and about the scope. Um, so, um, nice clinical guidelines do not extensively cover the scope of practice. And they're different also in the sense that they are strictly evidence-based. Uh, they do not allow expert opinion to influence the final recommendation. Um, you know, they, they respect us, they discuss with us, but uh, the recommendation will be strictly based what, of, or, on what is evidence-based. Um, and they aim to, because they're meant for the NHS, uh, which has um, really not unlimited budget, um, so the appropriate use of resources is important. And they aim to obtain the best healthcare for most people that it can be achieved uh, in the restrictions of the budget of the NHS. Um, reason why the recommendations are not based only on clinical effectiveness, but also on cost effectiveness. Um, so that what I think the difference is. And I think the nice clinical guidelines are somewhere in between uh, professional societies guidelines and appropriateness criteria. And can you tell us a little bit about the, the process, the background to the development of a nice guideline, perhaps with reference to one that you've been involved with? You mentioned at the beginning there that there are many more parties with different skill sets involved in, in with nice than perhaps there are with a professional society guideline. Uh, in terms of informaticians, data analysts, etc. Can you give us a little bit of the background to how that might work, just in general terms? Uh, you mentioned starting off with the scoping question. Yeah, I think that initially the, um, uh, the identification of an area that is in need of NICE guidelines is done by NICE in collaboration with NHS England and other national bodies. Um, so they, they, they discover that an area like, for example, heart valve disease is in need of developing NICE guidelines. And um, they first appoint the topic advisor, which to work closely with this professional team, which is expert in literature review, uh, in health economics, but obviously have no knowledge of the subject they've been given to develop guidelines on. So they will have no knowledge on Harvard disease, for example. 
So it starts uh, obviously with a way of sensitizing them and teaching them a bit about Harfal disease because their expertise and knowledge is absolutely crucial to, to the subsequent process. Um, and and they, they do have to uh, have basic knowledge of the subject we're working on and we're working together. Um, the, the scope is the first to be uh, developed. So the main questions that have an impact, not only clinical, and they have an impact in most patients, let's say with heart valve disease, um, the, the crucial questions are identified and they, they, they can't be uh, exhaustive. They have to be up to 10, let's say, questions. And um, when we review the literature, the literature review has to be strictly answering to these questions. So you will find when the guidelines is published or if you looked at the scope or at the um, draft guidelines which was published that they don't cover, they seem fragmented there, uh, just a collection of statements rather than a complete description of what we know uh, or what I know or what everybody in the uh, guidelines committee knows about Harvard disease or uh, wishes it was included. So they were the main, the main questions. And uh, subsequently, the decision is made regarding what type of evidence can be included. And in the majority of cases, NICE limits the evidence to randomized controlled trials. And this can be quite strict. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's exclusively used. And sometimes it's excluding um, important observational studies from the review. And as you know, particularly in heart valve disease, which has slowly developed over the last uh, um, couple of decades as being more in, um, important part of clinical practice in cardiology with the growth in numbers of patients with heart valve disease, um, much of the evidence uh, developed from observational studies and some retrospective analysis of evidence are absolutely beautiful and for a clinician like me um, are very important, but they are not um, seen as acceptable by the NICE um, expert um, guidelines development team. So they are excluded from, um, from the evidence. And um, I, I have to say that um, clinicians and it was hard for me to understand how I can be perceived as biased for wanting to include clinical evidence that to me is what I use in clinical practice. And uh, it made me reflect on myself and actually understand my bias in the way um, I've been taught, in the way I, I, I perceive uh, clinical practice and the patient in front of me I want to help. Um, and the fact that maybe uh, although um, what I do and what we all do uh, is done in the best of intention. It is important to be based um, on evidence in a way, in a very strict way. And, um, you know, NICE doesn't say that what is not in the guidelines cannot be used in clinical practice. So I think sometimes no recommendation is better than a negative recommendation mm. because it means that NICE did not find evidence against a certain element of clinical practice. So where there is no recommendation, clinical practice can continue as it is um, in current days, uh, you know, like we all do it based on experience, based on apprenticeship that medicine is and the experience of our teachers. Um, and it, it can continue the same. And um, NICE though cannot make a statement, cannot make a recommendation if there is no clinical evidence. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that after reviewing the clinical evidence also, 
we made initially recommendations which may have differed in many ways from the final recommendations in the draft because following the review of clinical evidence, there is review of economic um, evidence so of cost effectiveness and areas of significant cost for the NHS are identified and uh, um, the economic analysts are performing economic modeling of uh, a certain recommendation or the use of a certain procedure in the NHS uh, in general um, because Every recommendation made by NICE is subsequently supported by supporting to the clinical implementation and widely to be made widely available in the NHS. Uh, you know, it's thinking about the resources, about development of resources. There are other teams that will subsequently develop the local expertise and the local services. So whatever is a recommendation has to be available for everybody um, living and working in this country and benefiting from the NHS. Um, so uh, reason why NICE wants the final recommendation to uh, be also based on cost effectiveness and uh, economic modeling has a big impact. And it may completely reverse an initial clinical recommendation because it's found that actually uh, the uh, intervention is not cost effective. Um, and I have to say that I have mixed feelings about this as a clinician, because from one perspective, um, it feels hard to be part of a decision made against the use of some uh, interventions. From the other part, though, the economic modeling is just not about just only about the cost. The initial clinical effectiveness may be uh, decided based on a brief study. Mm. based on a study that looks at the procedure only. So 30 days after the procedure, this procedure A is better than procedure B. However, the cost effectiveness is looked at for lifetime. So it's looked at what is best for that patient throughout their lifetime. And, some, and it's not only based on the actual cost, but it looks at evidence about long-term complications, long-term side effects. So it's not only a cost analysis. The economic modeling is a clinical and cost effectiveness analysis, uh, but it looks at the clinical effectiveness in the long term, adding um, different studies and more uh, clinical evidence uh, about the trajectory of the patient throughout their lifetime. So in general, NICE takes 30 years as lifetime, which sometimes for patients which are elderly may not be the right way to look at because they may not have um, 30 years to live. Um, and you know it may be a bit restricted to a bit of a shorter interval of time, but it's still important um, to understand what will happen uh, throughout lifetime. So let's say if we were to offer uh, to a teenager or a young adult a procedure that has uh, lower durability, how many times that patient will be put through the same? It's not just a matter of uh, economical cost, financial cost, it's a matter of personal cost. Mm. Um, and this is um, subsequently the way that the final um, uh, recommendations are made based on all these lifetime financial and personal cost for patients. And Madalena, you've mentioned the, the way that uh, being part of the committee has affected your sort of professional practice and the way you think about things. Uh, would you say that it's been a, an enriching uh, process to be part of this, uh, the, the NICE team? 
I think uh, I'm not sure if my professional practice really is my reflection on myself as an individual. Okay. Uh, because, but I think that um, uh, it it was extremely enriching. Even mm. the fact that I accepted to be seen um, and to see myself as a biased individual um, is is enriching. Um, and I think uh, uh, it's it's good for all of us to put ourselves in that position and understand where we're coming from. It's like the um, ultimate appraisal, I guess, isn't it? <laughs> I guess, yeah, sort of, yeah, I think so. Anything else you'd like to share with the listeners uh, before we finish? What I think would be important, so I find uh, the process of NICE, and I was always very proud uh, that we have in the UK a National Institute of Clinical Excellence, um, and, and, and I think it's very important, and, and the use of the expertise of all these individuals um, uh, that NICE uh, provides uh, in support of development of uh, clinical guidelines is extremely important. Uh, what I find personally that would be important in the development of the future, because NICE evolved since 1999 and up to currently it evolved it follows the same principles but it, it evolved and it changed procedures um, I think where I see the future and what would make me happy for the future to happen would be if professional societies were stronger, had stronger involvement. They would make the ideal guidelines. If the professional societies were working hand in hand with NICE in the development of the guidelines, if the guidelines committee were not, was not appointed from individuals applying for the positions, but for representatives of national societies, I believe that that would be the ideal future uh, for ensuring the best quality of care uh, in the UK. But it's only my personal opinion. <laughs> I wonder if that's going to happen. I guess we'll have to uh, watch watch this space. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Garby. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you and get some uh, behind-the-scenes insight uh, into NICE. And uh, yeah, thanks once again. Thank you very much for inviting me. 